Now the barley harvest has ended. It is time for the men and women who have laboured hard in the reaping to celebrate. Ruth has been working hard in Boaz's field each day, making a pretty reasonable living uh, in no small part thanks to Boaz. Two things. First is generosity. He, he has gone above and beyond God's law in how much of the harvest he shared with Ruth and Naomi, hasn't he? You can see a guy here whose, whose heart is for the spirit of the law. That was to care for the widow and for the foreigner, not for the rule itself. And he lives how the Sermon on the Mount reads in that sense. Don't you feel this guy, Boaz? And because of that, he's got this generosity, but also he was not willing to use the weak and the vulnerable. It's because of his generosity and because of his goodness. Uh, he won't use her. Ruth is safe in his field. She doesn't go to work scared each day, which was unusual at the time of the judges. So now, the year's work is over. And Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, thinks it is time for a summer of love. There's no more harvesting to do. And so my daughter, she says, and I'm totally imagining like a Jewish mum vibe here, I must find rest for you, a home, security, now, if Ruth had been a 21st century Aussie, she'd probably have rolled her eyes. You're going to arrange security for me? You've been hanging around at home all day. I've, I'm bringing, I'm, I, who's been out gleaning? I'm the one bringing home the bacon. Oh, sorry, barley. Sorry, not, I'm with Jewish, I forgot. Um, you know, but Ruth is an 11th century BC ex-Moabitess who has pledged her lifelong loyalty to her bereaved mother-in-law, so she doesn't roll her eyes. She listens. Naomi continues, now Boaz is a relative. Ah, now that's important for us because that means that Boaz is a redeemer. And we are now going to take a short break, a jump out of the main bit to fill you in on the backstory of the kinsman redeemer. It is a thing. It is a big thing, particularly for this story. But through the Bible, this redeemer figure is someone you've got to know what they are in order to understand this story. Now, there are four ingredients to this recipe of a kinsman redeemer. Two parts culture, two parts law, okay? So two parts culture. The first cultural ingredient is the family name. In the ancient Near East, the family line was important. Unlike today, your family that you came from was your identity. You don't claim your place in the world by declaring who I am and declaring my identity and, and performing it. You, you, you received your identity. That's just who you were to get glory or honor, you had to bring honor and prestige and longevity to your family name because you're attached to it no matter what. So you would do whatever you could to make your family name great. And here we have oh, Psalm 109, uh, th th this, this sort of great, horrible thing. What would happen if your family name was actually lost from the earth? It's a big deal for them. Now, the second cultural ingredient is that they had no great sense of an eternal afterlife. The, the, the strongest sense of eternity that they had was, was your children prospering, going on in perpetuity, bringing more glory to the family line. And that way, your name would be preserved. Which means that this great curse of someone at home, to have no one remember your name, that's the worst thing. And so you have a very, very strong motivation to continue each family line. Do you remember, do you remember um, uh, Troy and Achilles says, you, you know, it was a guy was, was to, to the little messenger boy who came to tell him that the, the, the champion was there to fight him? And he says, is he, is, is he big? He's like, oh, I wouldn't want to fight him. He's like, yeah, that's why no one's going to remember your name, kid. Because that's the currency in the ancient world, whether you do something great enough to be remembered. 
but most, for most people, it was, remember, through your family. And so if your family was, if you were cut off from your family, if your family line was cut off, that was a problem. This is what's behind things like Genesis 38, where you've got um, uh, Judah, one of the, uh, one of the sort of um, uh, patriarchs of, of Israel, saying to his son Onan, hey, look, you've got to, you've got to, your brother's died, and you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to perpetuate his family line. You've got to have kids for him. But Onan, it's, it's a bit tricky. It does, it, it's not actually a great deal for Onan, so he didn't want to do it. And this was the second cultural element, this, this practice that when a married man died, a close relative would sleep with the widow, and the child of that union didn't count as his child. The child is his brother's child. We'd continue that family line. We'd, we'd inherit the, 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 the land that went with it. Do you reckon that got complicated? Yeah. But it's what a good brother did back then. And, it was, it, and it, had, it was complicated, it was hard, it was costly. Now, so those are the two cultural ingredients. Now you add to that the first legal ingredient, which is how Israelite inheritance works. Now, how that worked was each clan, when they got to the land, was given a parcel of land to work and keep. It was theirs in perpetuity. It had to stay in the family. As long as they're a member of that family alive, that's theirs. They can sell it if they get really poor, but every 49 years, when the year of Jubilee comes around, Reset, everything goes back. You can't forever lose your inheritance as long as there's someone alive to be linked with it. Okay, That's how Israelite inheritance works. Then the last ingredient is essentially God regulating some of these things to ensure fairness. Uh, and so there's Leviticus 25. You can read through other bits of it. But, but, but this, this thing where this is how you redeem it. This is who can do it. This is when and how. And there's lots of different detail in that if you go through the whole of the chapter. Now, that is what a kinsman redeemer is. And that is what Naomi has just let loose to Ruth that Boaz is. Now, if you think about that, this kinsman redeemer is someone who redeems an inheritance for an Israelite person. Whose interests is Naomi serving when she hatches the plan with Boaz? Ruth doesn't have an inheritance in Israel to redeem. Like, she's a Moabites. Her marrying a relative is of no particular benefit to her. She could choose any man who'd have her and just become part of his line. So when Naomi says, he's a relative, who's that good for? That's good for Naomi. That helps her. That, 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 that's good for her, her dead husband and his, not, his name, his line. And yet... Ruth doesn't roll her eyes and say, gee, that's so selfish. Why can't I just marry someone I like? She listens. So, okay, right, so it's, it's party night at the threshing floor, Ruth. Two instructions. Get pretty and get him drunk. Okay? This is what you have to do. As Naomi and Elimelech always had, they reach for the pragmatic playbook. And what works is what they do. They use their common sense and they solve things. A bath, perfume, pretty dress, good food, bottle of wine. Tried and tested means of getting yourself a husband. I'm not going to ask any of you if that's how you managed it. Maybe, that's, maybe that was just me. And yet, when he's good in spirits and sleepy, carefully mark the place where he lies... Because it actually could be dangerous for you if you get the wrong guy. So it's tried and, trust, tried and trusted the methodology, but the situation that she's walking into, that's not exactly 
safe, she's going to a place where a large bunch of testosterone-fueled, sort of exercise-energized, wine-drinking men are crashing out after their big meal and celebration. This is not a safe scenario physically in the time of the judges, or even just socially for Ruth. It might not be entirely appropriate. See, again, the author has reminded us here that, that this innocent story has kind of like a, a violent backdrop. Uh, it, it, there's, there's just these tiny little hints all the way through that, hold on, this is an MA-rated country that we're living in, and that MA content threatens to keep spilling into the G-rated frame. Naomi keeps going, right, once the coast is clear, you sneak up, you uncover his feet, and you lie down next to him. And he will tell you what to do next. Dads and mums, how many of you are now thinking that you're going to use this as a model for how your daughter should find herself a husband? Like, like, like I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't meant like, to be a little funny line. Like, genuinely, what do you think of this advice? What do you think Naomi is expecting Boaz to do? Or hoping Boaz might do? At the very least, she's putting Ruth and Boaz in a space where she's at her most attractive, he's at his least inhibited. And then she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Ruth says, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's going to be a big night. Okay, well, I don't know if you remember the last date that you got ready for and then what it felt like getting dressed up and you know, getting the shower and all that sort of stuff happening. Uh, but imagine what's happening for Ruth as she gets ready for this. Possibly life-changing evening. She creeps down to the threshing floor, perfumed up, and she hides. Not a, still a strange way to start a date, isn't it, to have to hide? She sees him lying down to sleep, sneaks over, uncovers his legs, probably so that he'll wake up at some point through the night when his feet are freezing, and she lies down there. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he sees a woman lying right there next to him. And he, he just imagined Boaz thinking, well, I am sure I did not drink enough wine for that to happen. What, what, this is, what is going on? Now, a, a word here on some interpretations that you may have come across. Because I, I've heard a lot of people talk about the, the, the dodginess of this scene. And actually, that... Uh, there are a lot of euphemisms here, and this is actually just a, a slightly polite version of very sexual scene. Uh, people say things like foot there is a euphemism in other places of the Bible for a man's sexual parts. And, and therefore, that, that, and then and on top of that, there's these other similarities with the language of uncovering, of, um, of analogies where uncovering is a euphemism for sexual activity in other parts of the Bible, in Leviticus, no less, where the Redeemer laws are. And in fact, the truth is, actually, look, heaps of words in this section are capable of having a double meaning. This is like double entendre city. This is, if you've ever seen like the old, um, I don't know, Carry On series or, or sort of uh, Are You Being Served, like every second word, all the humour, it's all double entendre. Like, if you said this section out loud uh, in, in Israelite, in Hebrew, um, you know, while winking, oh, she'd uncover his feet, eh? She uncovered his feet, didn't she? Yeah? It, you know, it would sound really shady. It does. Like, that's there. It's in the text. And there's even echoes of the origin stories of the Moabite nation. You remember where Lot's daughters got him, got their father drunk to perpetuate their line. You see how all the themes and all of the dodginess is in the air. It's that MA-rated background. Except, it 
it's actually really clear that Ruth uncovering his feet here doesn't mean that she did anything other than literally taking the blanket off because he doesn't even wake up until the middle of the night. And when he does, he's surprised that there's a woman there. It's obvious that they haven't been intimate. And the way the remainder of their exchange is told by the storyteller, it's clear that both purity and the appearance of purity are foremost in both Boaz and Ruth's minds. You see, one of the interesting things is there's one bit where Ruth doesn't do what Naomi says. See, back in the story, Boaz asks this sort of lump next to him that's a woman, and he realizes, who are you? And Ruth says, I'm Ruth, your servant. But she doesn't stop there, like Naomi said. She says something that Naomi didn't tell her to do. Naomi said, just do, let Boaz do whatever he thinks good to do with you. But Ruth doesn't want to operate that way, and she, doesn't, she judges Boaz to be the same, and he doesn't want to either. She straight out asks him, hey, you, I want you to propose to me. That, that, that's what spread the corner of your garment over me, spread the wing, your wings over me means. She's not, she's, not, she's not cold and asking him to stop hogging the blankets. <laughs> like, come on, give me this. She, no, this is the same spreading of the wings phrase that was used of Ruth when she was coming to shelter under God's wings when she came back with Naomi. Marry me, she says, because you are a redeemer to us. This is very forward. Who says the bloke has to ask, eh? And Boaz loves it. He's not threatened. He's so impressed. Do you see it there? What an incredible woman, he thinks, because of your loyalty. Because of your loyalty. Now, I know that it's in, in the NIV is translated kindness here, but in other translations, and even the NIV translates this word in other parts of the Bible differently, uh, it's translated loyalty, devotion, even covenant faithfulness. But, but, but why is this an act of loyalty? Like, like to whom? I mean, it sounds like the way, that, the way that most translations read, it reads like romance. He's just really pleased that she went after him. Well, Boaz tells us who's the, who this is loyalty to. He says, this act of devotion is greater than your previous one because you haven't sought to marry one of the young men, whether rich or poor. See, the thing is, Ruth could have married for physical attraction. Like, Boaz knows he's an older bloke. He, he's, he's quite realistic about whether Ruth is into him for his middle-aged spread. There were plenty of young men working in the fields, you know, biceps glistening with sweat as they swung the size. To, you know, she, she's working with physical guys and the young men are all there. We saw it in this first scene. She could have married for money. Boaz wasn't the only field owner in the region. Some of them would have been younger. Why did she go for Boaz? It's because of her loyalty to Naomi. It's because of her mother-in-law. She went to him because he is a kinsman redeemer. That's what sets him apart. Not for her, it's for Naomi. Marrying him means that her first child is going to belong to a Limelech's line. It's going to be Naomi's, not hers. Marrying Boaz means the preservation of a Limelech's line for posterity, the restoration of a dead family. Marrying him meant her mother-in-law having rest, being full again. Not just in food, but in, in, in children, in glory, in honour, and in the perpetuation of the family line. See, Ruth was thinking about the benefit of someone else when she chose who she was going to marry. Man, that's... that's I get it. What love, what love, what loyalty, says Boaz. I'm like, yeah, that, that is a big deal. 
what faithfulness to her word when she promised to be with her mother-in-law. Now, he's a mighty man. He's a Giborim, one of these, these, these sort of uh, great men of the Old Testament. She could still be marrying him for money. But Boaz says, no. You could have had someone to grow old with, a young man to grow old with, and you could have had money. But you chose me. Different generation. So we've got Ruth, who's marrying for her mother-in-law. But interestingly, so does Boaz. Boaz is also marrying for Naomi. See, Ruth wasn't a catch for Boaz by worldly standards. She's a foreigner with a stigma. No financially beneficial connections for him. In fact, as we'll see next week, he's likely to lose out, both in terms of finance and in terms of his inheritance, if, if he goes through with this. So Boaz also marries for Naomi. Man, what a privileged girl this Naomi is. That, that frustratingly godly but ungodly you know, the reason that Ruth came into Israel and came to Israel's God, but also kind of the reason that they got in, part of the reason they got in trouble in the first place. Really pious, and she knows God, but she's also just pragmatic and doesn't trust God, trusts her in her common sense instead. She's depressed and bitter at times, and, and, on, and sometimes often self-interested because of that. And in short, she's a normal human being, like you and like me. You see, Ruth and Boaz, they're heroes in this, right? They're awesome. They're superhuman. But Naomi's the one we can relate to. Now, it's interesting for Boaz, maybe not even just for Naomi. He, through doing this, is going to see his cousin's family, Elimelech's line, continue in the fields of Bethlehem, as it always was supposed to, as God intended, as God gave it to that clan and family to have happen forever, but death was about to steal that away from that family, and he says, no, I will continue that family line of family name for my dead cousin. And so Boaz, like God, shows kindness to both the living and the dead. Now, that's a worthy thought, isn't it? Just, for, just take for a moment that, that line of Scripture. The one who shows kindness to both the living and the dead. That is a worthy thought for those of us who have lost Parents or friends or maybe even children, brothers, sisters. But God is the one who shows kindness to the living and the dead. Even after Limelech died, there are events that were a blessing to him. Now, I think it's hard to walk away from this without saying a reminder to the married people here, to us, uh, that marriage, our marriage is not primarily about us. Okay, there are bigger things at stake than whether I feel fulfilled in my marriage. Our marriages affect more than just us. They affect everyone around us. Ruth, Ruth and Boaz understood this. They affect our church. They affect our community. They affect our kids. They affect the stability of our community and the blessing of our city. Uh, inwardly focused marriages tend towards discontentment because they're always looking towards contentment and, and, and it messes everything up. And if you're a youngster here, if, you, if, you, if you're someone who's start, just starting to get interested in girls or boys, you're getting to sort of that age and you're thinking about, you know, do I like this girl or whatever, you guys swim in a culture where the idea is that romantic relationships are all about making you feel happy and good. And that, I tell you, makes so many people in your generation utterly miserable. And it's not what marriage is for. You see, these guys living with their marriage in order to bless 
others. And we'll see in the next chapter how God uses that actually to bring blessing to them too. But we'll move away. Now look, this, this, if you're sitting there and thinking, actually, I just realised I've spent the last little while being pretty darn selfish in and with my marriage, this shouldn't lead you wallowing in guilt or feeling bad. And I'll tell you why here. You see, Ruth and Boaz are the heroes in this story, but we're not supposed to identify with them. We're like Naomi. We're the mixed, mixed up ones. The ones who want God, but we don't trust Him with our whole hearts. The ones who pray, but then we're willing to sin when it seems like the only common sense option for us. We're sad about the hardships that God's put us through, maybe bitter at times even, but, 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 but genuinely, and genuinely wanting good for the people around us, like she wants good things for, for Ruth, but then kind of actually the way she does it is actually sort of self-serving too. And like, this is us. And yet God, when we return to him, like Naomi, when she returns to Israel, he loves us. He spreads his wing over us. This is a story designed to get us to walk back to God when we haven't been. This is a story designed for the moment of realizing that I've actually been selfish in some way. To say, come back because I'm not going to scorn you for it. I'm going to bless you. I'm the one who's here to spread the wings over you and draw you in and say, yeah. And in fact, and look, it might even be that maybe there might be someone at church who is sort of like looking out for you and put energy and love into you and try to sort of bring you in in some kind of little way and, and you don't even really deserve how much that they've been trying to do that. And that, that's actually God spreading his wings. That, that just like here, what Boaz and Ruth were doing for Naomi, even though she was a little bit sort of selfish about it all. See, this is the Christian story. If you think that, that knowing God is something that you earn by being good, then you don't know God and I'd love to introduce him to you. You see, see, Naomi's story of returning to God and finding rich love and blessings that she doesn't deserve, it, that's the story of every Christian. And so Jesus says to you today in this story, he says to all of us, he says, come back to me in whatever little ways you have been distant from me. Come back, come back, come back. That's what he's saying right now in this moment to us all in this passage. Will you, like Ruth, do what he says? And will you have the uh, audacity to ask him to spread his wings over you? There's a little bit more to the story. Next, Boaz does reveal uh, new information that threatens to uh, undo the love story. There's another redeemer. Mark, I don't know why, I just can't uh, get it to flick forward. Um, and all of a sudden, it's like a record needle sort of scratching across the record, right? There's, there's another redeemer who is a, a, like a, a closer relative than I. And so the law says that he has first right of redemption. And, and you get to this point, and Boaz is explaining it, and you're, sort of, you're following his male kind of logic, right? And he says, look, and look, if he agrees to marry you, good, but I'll be your backup, okay? Wow. So romantic. Thanks, Boaz. You can see you really like me then, huh? Like, I have seen so, like, there are far smaller things than this in, like, dramas that you watch on TV, the way the woman storms off in a half for saying something like this, right? He's like, yeah, if he, if he wants to marry you, he's going to go, it's good, it's fine, it doesn't bother me. It's actually this line, though, that seems a little bit like that to our eyes, that is is the line that makes this story beautiful. I really mean that. You need to see that. It says that Boaz loves and respects and honors the words of God more than he wants to marry Ruth. And that is the best news in this chapter. That is what has stopped the MA content of the background to this story 
flooding into this story because Boaz loves God more and he is not willing to do what is right in his eyes or our eyes or the romantic story's eyes in order to disobey God. And he and that conviction is what's stopping that content from bursting in. Now, we look at it and we think, look, Boaz, you're risking all the goodness that we have been hoping for in this story, that we've been cheering for. Naomi's restoration, Ruth's well-being. Like, we don't know about that guy. He could be a jerk. He might not be very nice. He might be, you know, provide for her but not be particularly loving and, oh, that's going to ruin her. And yet Boaz trusts God. He trusts what is right in God's eyes is actually going to work out better than his common sense. And that is a hard, hard thing to obey. But that's what keeps the world of the judges where everyone does what's right in their own eyes back from this beautiful story and keeps it G-rated. And it, is the, it, it feels like the dumbest male logic thing to say. And yet in this particular moment, it's the best news in this whole chapter. One, one little word to husbands, and there is a corresponding word to wives that you can sort of hear in it, but there's a, some kind of primariness to husbands here. Husbands, you will not love your wife well if you love her and you value peace with her more than you love and value Jesus. And it's not a case of, oh, I need to, I need to make her godlier. Do you see how all of a sudden you've just decided that the whole, the, I'm not saying you, but I'm not pointing any fingers towards me. I never do this at all. Um, like, it's not that sort of like, oh, I need, to, I need to, 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 to make my wife love Jesus more. No, I need to make me love Jesus more. I need to be investing in that. I need to be investing in what I care about the most. And, and what, what, what do I spend my time on so that my loves and my cares and what I want to obey is actually formed by Jesus and what his rule for my life is, what he wants for me. See, in all sorts of ways, we might sacrifice the truth for the sake of peace in the house. That's one way. And so we don't bring up difficult topics. I might, I might prefer my wife to think well of me than to have to confess sin to her and so perpetuate sin in my own life. There's all sorts of ways that we can, uh, we can subtly love our spouse more than Jesus, and actually, it just shows it's not really actually loving your spouse whatsoever. The common sense white lies that Boaz just refuses to tell. Now, what are the results of doing the common sense thing over the weird, energy-requiring shaping of everything in your life around Jesus? Well, that's what Elimelech did when he took his family to Moab. He made a spiritual sacrifice. Oh, I just put aside the God stuff to take care of my family's basic needs. And that didn't end well for his family's basic needs. Seek first the kingdom, says God. I know you need the rest. I'll provide it. You think I can't? Even if it meant, if it meant quitting your job. How can I quit my job? My kids need to eat. Well, if quitting your job means disobeying God, sinning, then it's clear, isn't it? What the common sense thing to do is, and it's clear what the God-honoring thing to do is. Brothers, devote yourselves to Jesus above everything else. And lay, then, after that, lay down your life for your wife as Jesus commanded you to, as he did for us all. There's other little common sense things. I have to do the overtime. Of course the kids will play that sport and do those activities they want to. I don't want to have the fight with the kids. It's easier to have them like me. But there's no time to read the Bible to them because I made that choice. But that's just life, isn't it? That's just busyness. 
I, I say this because I, I, I can neglect these responsibilities. And I can act like life is what just determines things instead of actually, no, I'm, I'm the one who makes the choices about what happens within my life. And together, myself and my wife, we're the ones who make the choices about what happens in our family. If we have to sacrifice to have our families based around Jesus, then that's good. The Lord will provide. God's people in his church will be with you if you lose your job over it. How are you setting up your life? Now, the story is a tiny little epilogue. The story ends with Boaz kicking into action. It's great. He, he, he backs his words with whatever. It's sort of like scrabbling around for whatever cash he's got lying around. He's like, oh, barley, <laughs> barley. That's, that's all I've got to give you. Uh, and as much grain as, as Ruth can carry back with her, she has to repurpose her best frock. Like, imagine, you, you know, you're pretty dressed that you got to impress the guy, and he's like, all right, okay, just stretch it out here and just dunk, you know, weights and weights and weights of stuff in it. Because he just will not send her back to Naomi empty. You see his intention there again. See, Boaz intends to see Naomi full once again. His desire is to bless not himself, but the people around him. He is the picture of Jesus for us. Yes, he's the one we want to be like. Yes, I want to be as canny and as taking the initiative and as faithful and as hardworking as Ruth too. But I know I'm more like Naomi. But Naomi trusts this token that comes back. And that's the word for us. The last line is, she is confident that he will not rest until he has given her rest. And that's us with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the reality that this story points to. Yes, it's a great story where we feel Naomi's normalness and Naomi's, Naomi's failures and Naomi's bitterness or depression or all the other things, that bits that we can relate to and uh, imperfection. But it, it's, that, that story points to the very real reality of what it's like for all of us with you. Uh, thank you that you're so good. Thank you that when we come back to you, we get undeserved restoration. That's got nothing to do with the quality of our character. Thank you that we see the goodness of what it's like to not just love your law and refuse to disobey it, but to actually love the spirit of the law too. We get this model in Ruth and Boaz of, of, of Jesus, what he's like and of what we could be like too and what we will be like one day in heaven with you. Uh, but for now, Lord, we ask that you would give us confidence. Thank you that you, like, uh, like Boaz giving the barley, that you have put your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you, you've given us the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that there is more than sufficient down payment for us to trust you, that you will not rest until we are resting with you. Amen.